this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. By supporting the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, you get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. I'm in uh, Tahiti right now. The Slow Boat is out of the water, and this is a, a heartfelt episode here. This is a family who I got to meet their children while I was in Papiete Marina here in Tahiti. And uh, they're the crew of the Tandem Malaika, a boat that was floating a few weeks ago, and now it is uh, crashed on the rocks and it is a total loss. So Papiete Marina is really uh, the crossroads of world cruising. If you think of a place where you will see more world cruisers uh, besides the Bahamas, that there are very few places like it. And certainly in places like the Bahamas or the Eastern Caribbean, great number of the boats are, are not going around the world, but it's really uh, the first stop in the round-the-world trip where you, you find a, a lot of uh, boats. It's even uh, more popular, according to Jimmy Cornell's statistics, about the movements of yachts around the world, uh, which I cite in my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. And you can also see the, the boat show talk on YouTube dot com slash slowboat sailing where I talk about that book and I talk about the yacht movements if you think about uh, the most popular stop it's Tahiti and the Panama Canal is way behind that because the cruisers coming from primarily North America on the west coast of North America it's their first stop. So most of the cruisers probably stopping in Tahiti did not go through the Panama Canal, but they are from the west coast of the United States or Canada. Uh, And then there's, of course, a lot of cruisers like myself that went through the Panama Canal. There's also a lot of cruisers like from Europe who went uh, through the Eastern Caribbean before they got to the Panama Canal. So most of the foreign boats in Tahiti will never make it around the world if you believe uh, Jimmy Cornell's statistics that most of them will give up on the trade wind route uh, by Australia. But it's amazing the number of boats and people that you run into in Papiete Marina. It's a true choke point for the world cruising routes. Somewhat similar to Shelter Bay Marina but even more so and people that you've met on other parts of the way you'll bump into oftentimes in Papiete Marina. So the the crew of the Tonda Malaika, which was Dan Govatos, Belinda Govatos, and their four children, their four teenage children, uh, were only a few boats down from us in Papiete marina a couple weeks ago and their children actually caught our dock lines and right before they departed papiete marina their children gave us a gift of some dr seuss books uh, which i read to sophie while sophie and jana 
were on the boat and Sophie took those Dr. Seuss books home and we will read them at home. So I got to speak with Dan Govatos a few days ago. He is the skipper, owner, and father on the Tonda Malaika. And Dan Govatos and his family sailed to Morea and then they sailed on to Huahini, which is in the northern group of the Society Islands. So typically, if boats are choosing to go to the uh, stop at the main stops in the Society Islands, they'll stop in Tahiti, then Morea, and then it is a 80-90 mile passage from Morea to Huahini, and then there's Raiatea, which is right next to Huahini, say 15 miles away. And Raiatea also shares a reef with the island of Taha. And then another very popular stop before people depart French Polynesia, of course, is Bora Bora. So if I have the time right, around July 16th, they departed to Huahini from Morea early in the day and sailed to Huahini uh, where they wrecked their boat in the evening. This was right after Jan and Sophie left for me and I had thought about cruising Morea which is only say 15 miles away or so 20 miles to the anchorage that I would like to go to uh, but I didn't do that because I thought that the the seas were just a little bigger than I wanted that three meter seas were forecast and I typically try to avoid three meter seas if I can I don't think you can avoid one to two meter seas in the big ocean but uh, you can often avoid three so you know, typically trade winds are going to be force 4, force 5, maybe up to 21 knots. I try to avoid going out uh, with the forecast over 20 knots, uh, certainly for offshore passages. So, Dan's going to talk to you about the decision making that he went through uh, to go to, from Morea to Huahini and the problems he had with the charts and what ultimately led to them hitting the reef on the south end of Huahini. You know, I'll talk about, you know, what I uh, have done on passages similar to that. So, it's say it's 80 miles. For me, my boat it will go six miles an hour maximum unless it's falling off a wave. So, a rock can fall very fast if you're just dropping it off a tower and likewise a boat can go faster than its hull speed if it's falling off a wave and this is often called surfing but uh, in general uh, most cruising boats but not necessarily all catamarans are limited by uh, their hull size so their waterline length and so the speed of my boat is pretty much limited by its waterline length, save a surfing situation, which I would like to avoid. 
uh, because I don't like to be out in big waves. The fastest my boat I can expect to go is about six knots. But I'm on the slow boat and I like to take things slow and to go near hull speed you really need to push the boat and I don't like to push the boat's limits uh, because I think things break when you push the boat's limits and also it's not very fuel efficient so if you're willing to motor uh, it's very hard to motor at six knots unless you have a following sea which they did typically in my planning I would say I think about how fast I could go at five knots and then do kind of scenarios going four knots and six knots to see when I would arrive at a port and one of the things that I said in an earlier podcast where there was a bonus episode is that I have observed and I have since observed that in my latest visit to Morea just a few days ago a week ago uh, that a lot of cruisers do not follow the maxim uh, never arrive in an unfamiliar harbor at night and I think that's very important maxim especially for reef strewn areas uh, which are not necessarily well lighted not necessarily well charted like French Polynesia you can leave a port that you've been to at night is what the maxim says but you can't arrive at night so how would I try to avoid arriving at an unfamiliar port at night one thing is you could leave your port at night so that you have enough time to reach it in the daytime that's one option another option is if it's if it's pretty much a 12-hour day and that the night is almost as long as the day when you're close to the equator here maybe it's 13 hours of dark and 11 hours of light since we're in the winter time here in the southern hemisphere uh, that it it's still conceivable that you could plan on a passage maybe departing at 5 p.m. and arriving at uh, you know 6 a.m. when uh, the sun rises or 7 a.m. something like that and so that's probably what I would do for an 80 mile passage I plan on making five knots would not try to push the boat much past five knots uh, unless I was absolutely sure we were going to get in before uh, if we were going to get in well after dawn uh, and and so with a five knot plan for me if I had to go 80 miles that would be a 16-hour passage and I should depart sometime in the afternoon of the previous day that I want to arrive because if I do it in the late afternoon I'm ensured that I'm going to get at the port sometime in the morning if I go five knots and you know if I depart at five before sunset for instance that is I'm out the out the reef pass by 5 p.m there's almost no chance that I could get there early and of course I control the speed of the boat because I can reef the boat uh, I can control how much engine I use all those things are under my control I can always make my boat slower and so there's no danger that I would get there before 6 a.m. dawn and in the past I've done that uh, there there's kind of a long jump that I talk about between 
Marco Island and Key West or the Florida Keys that I have done both back and forth and I departed in the afternoon and arrived in the morning but I had an overnight sail and so through the darkness hours I was in deep water and as you, you'll hear that this, the kids are pretty old so if they needed to have a watch system for that 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 certainly was something that was possible I think if you read the May Day blog Belinda was suffering from back problems at the time and uh, she was suffering quite badly in the heavy seas. I'll break with my tradition of not mentioning the interview in the, the early part of the episode in depth because the sound quality on the, the internet interview that I had with Dan was not really great. I spent a long time trying to enhance the sound quality. I lost a lot of his statements because it just didn't come through uh, well enough to be recorded and maybe I didn't hear it well at all and that really was a symptom of the poor internet facilities in French Polynesia one of the things that I've found is that uh, you know in the US it's pretty common for people to get internet on their phone. Everybody's been checking email on their internet for the last three years or more. But uh, in French Polynesia, almost nobody gets the internet on their phones. And they pretty much only get it from very slow Wi-Fi. And I've talked to whether it's locals or cruisers, very few people uh, pay for data like I do and thus they have really unreliable Wi-Fi signals uh, and I didn't think that could be help. I think Dan was very brave to come on the, the podcast uh, so soon after the wreck and I, I applaud him for that and he did a great public service to the cruiser community to do so. But what I'm trying to say is that the internet connection he was calling from was not so good even though my internet connection was pretty good uh, because I I paid over a thousand dollars for data here in, in French Polynesia and Tahiti has the fastest internet of all of French Polynesia so Dan tells me in this interview uh, that he left at 6 a.m. he planned to go 9 to 10 knots uh, and unfortunately the winds were forecast to be 20 to 25 knots but they didn't fill in until later in the day and he had a slower progress and that was why he was rounding uh, the reef in Huahini at night at uh, around 9 to 10 p.m. after well after the sun had set because the sun sets at about 6 p.m. here in Tahiti. So as I've touched on there, there are a lot of things in that statement that I wouldn't do. Number one I would not depart offshore if I had any leeway in 20 to 25 knot forecast. I learned that lesson that I talk about in Slow Boat to the Bahamas, my book, uh, and I did not like going offshore in 20 to 25 knot winds, and if I have a choice, I won't do that, and I consider a jump from Morea to Huahini is an offshore passage even though it's not a very long one you're still in the big ocean you're not in protected waters. Two, I would not have done that passage in the morning. Now 
Dan's boat is fat was faster than mine. He, you know, conceivably has a hull speed, uh, a maximum hull speed of nine knots, and because it's a catamaran, maybe it can exceed hull speed. I'm not sure. You know, uh, I'm not a catamaran expert, but he also had a pretty heavy catamaran. He had a Lagoon 46, I believe. I may be wrong on that, but I think he said Lagoon 46 in the interview. And so maybe with a following sea and a favorable current, he could do over nine knots and get that done conceivably within 10 hours, right? And uh, if all went well, but you know, you can always go make yourself go slower, but sometimes you can't make yourself go faster very easily. So uh, that was the thing that I think he ran into and he decided to press on even though he was not going to arrive before sunset. You know, but I think my guy, you know, what I try to follow, not to be in three meter waves and not to be in more than 20 knots of wind, I would say that is not a common thing. And I would say that probably most sailing skippers are not as conservative as I am about the wind and waves. And they go out in that all the time and often see those as some of the most favorable sailing conditions. So going out in that, I don't think anybody would criticize him as doing anything unsafe. Unfortunately, those big conditions did contribute to the crash because he said the conditions were so big that he wanted to be close to land and he wanted to be in the lee of the island quickly and that was why he was hugging the coast in what he thought were chart depths of about 200 feet. And unfortunately the, the chart depths were not as accurate as he wanted to and the reef extended anywhere from 100 feet to 400 yards um, out further and obviously if you're rounding Huahini at night you want to give that reef a big berth now I wouldn't give it a quarter mile berth I'd give it at least a mile berth but he was seeking protection close into the reef close into the island and because of that his boat was wrecked and his family had to be evacuated uh, by helicopter so in general you know bad charts or or good charts I would say that the charts in French Polynesia are bad a lot of places are uncharted and that you should expect that there should be some sort of chart offsets and that's why you don't want to enter an unfamiliar harbor or get close to an island at night and I personally have been while I've been in French Polynesia and I don't think this is an absolute rule or the way to do it but I would not round an island in the 200 foot depths I would round an island in the thousand foot depths and so for instance going around in Morea you tend to go around the island for a good bit and I always tried to stay in the thousand foot depths and that was not just because I think that the Pacific the shelves are, are relatively steep towards the reef and towards the island but also just because I think if you're in the thousand foot depths it's just a little less choppy uh, that you don't have the breaking waves you just have more of the swells and the swells are not getting as steep in the thousand foot depths 
and you know you can have over 10,000 foot depths here in the Pacific so it, you're still very shelved but still a thousand is a big difference in terms of the, the steepness of the waves and maybe a thousand foot depths versus 200 foot depths so if it were, were me I think I would not have tried to cut the reef as close even if I were approaching at night just because I would think perhaps the waves would be better but you know if I were out in really big conditions you know maybe I would uh, me or other skippers or you would be uh, tempted to go inside and see if the, the waves were a little bit better a little bit closer to shore and unfortunately that was a mistake that cost him his home so very early on in my cruising I learned that the charts are not to be trusted for instance in very near my home port of New Orleans is this town called Slidell and Slidell is where the eye of the hurricane Hurricane Katrina landed and it's conceivable that the topography of Slidell especially on the water has changed dramatically and so if you go into this one marina in Slidell, Louisiana, the chart will show that there's this, you know, land where there isn't land, and it's very obvious. So if you go in there during the day, you follow the buoys, you look at the depth sounders, you'll know that the chart is just, just way wrong. And in other parts of the ICW, uh, I think you'll find that too. I found that uh, maybe not necessarily in the ICW, but in the canals uh, between Panama City, Florida and Carabel, Florida. Those canals, all the time I would be motoring over parts that they would say are land, but I was traveling during the day. I saw very clearly where the water was, and I saw very clearly where the, the trees were, because it was a swamp with trees, and I was in the water, but the chart said I was on the land. So I've learned that lesson just from kind of local and ICW cruising that you can't trust the charts and uh, it's, it's much more serious when you're talking about places that have rocky shores or reefs and uh, there's just really no room for error. Well, I think that this was a preventable accident and there were probably judgments that could be reconsidered. It is no doubt a very sad story that I think a lot of skippers could learn from and I think a lot of skippers and boat owners are making these mistakes but they are have not been paid the ultimate price or paid the high price. I won't say it's the ultimate price but the high price that Ben Govatos, Belinda Govatos, and their children have paid in terms of losing their home and losing their boat and putting an end to their uh, cruising dreams for the moment. All right, without further introduction, here's Ben Govatos of adventuresofatribe.com and the skipper of the wrecked tandem Malaika. So we've spent eight days stripping virtually everything of value. Today with the engines and the generator, we were able to get, have, have a, some local mount and we were able to, to uh, use the boom and the uh, 
the, the uh, blocks, lift the engines up and swing them out over this boat, drop them down onto it. It was a lot of work. Is it okay if we took a step back? I, I read your wife's blog, uh, her Mayday blog, and her more recent blog. Could you pronounce the name of your boat? I don't want to mispronounce it. It's pronounced Tonda Malaika. Tonda Malaika. And you, right. s you sail on that boat with your wife, and your wife's name is? Belinda. Belinda. And the, the name of your the children uh, who also sail on the boat? Yeah, we have... Um, and uh, Micah, Micah that's 17, and then Emma and Aiden, who are twins, they're 14. Okay. So, in total, uh, four, four, and uh, so the 19-year-old girl, 17-year-old girl, and then 15-year-old twins. Okay, so six. What's your home port? Where did you start sailing out of with the Tonda Malika? Well, we. Well, we bought Tonda Malaika, but we're down in Bocas del Toro. And uh, we thought that since we were on the Caribbean side of Panama, it might be good to kind of learn about and learn, you know, how to be cruisers sailing around the Caribbean. So that was uh, two, a little over two years ago. And uh, so we, we went from Bocas del Toro up uh, through um, Honduras and Mexico and the Florida Keys and then all the way down East Caribbean and then uh, back in March we went through the Panama Canal. We were in the marina about the same time, Papiete Marina about the same time you guys were. I think you guys departed Papiete Marina a week or two before I did and you visited, after leaving Tahiti you visited Morea. Do you want to talk about the the trip from Morea to Huahini? We uh, were in, in a, not really a rush. Um, we our, our visas expire for French Polynesia on August 7th. So we wanted to see as much of French Polynesia as we could before that. So our feeling was that we would go from Morea to Huahini to Raiatea and then Bora Bora. And the, the day that we left, the, the winds were forecast to be almost directly uh, behind us at between 20 and 25 knots, which is um, really a, a good uh, good wind speed for our catamaran. Uh, she sails very nice uh, downwind um, with following seas. And so uh, we, we left at 6, six uh, in the morning uh, at first light. We left Morea, knowing that uh, you know our winds were gonna were be such that it should only take us about ten hours. When when we're when we have those kind of winds, we usually average between nine and ten knots, and so it, it was a, it's an eighty mile sail over here to Huahini, and we we left, and the winds just never materialized, and finally a quarter of the way here. Um, I decided to start both engines and put the jib out and just try to motor sail as fast as we could in order to get here before it got dark. But our 10-hour, our, our planned 10-hour sail, which would have gotten this here before in the afternoon with plenty of light, we ended up not getting here until 10, uh, 9, about 9.30 okay. p.m. And about 10 miles 
then suddenly the winds kicked up to about 20 to 5 to 30 knots. So we were in, uh, we were in following seas and very high seas with both engines going, trying to make it uh, to Huahini, uh, the other side of Huahini, um, in the dark. Which um, so it was a it was a multiple multiple things, and to top that all off, we were using uh, our chart provider uh, did not show the reef around Huahini. It, it showed basically uh, blue water where we were, and this, this island, the few few island, this part of Polynesia way around it, but on our chart plot, it did not have reef, so. It showed blue water, and so trying to get around the corner uh, at the winds and seas, um, basically we cut too close, and the surf picked us up. Uh, I I actually saw on the the, uh, the the 185 feet to all the way up to almost zero, slammed us onto the reef. So you were going around the north end of Huahini, is that right? So you're going around the edge of Huahini. Were you? Correct. What corner were you on? It the was, northeast corner, actually, or northwest corner, it or was actually the south. south? Okay. Yeah, on the Rotea side. Right. You were. Yeah. You were on the west side, or the south side, or southwest side. Going around southwest corner. Okay. Southwest corner. Okay. Yeah, I see that. On the blog, Belinda said that you guys use Navionics charts, and I, like a lot of other people, have Navionics charts on my Apple device. And so I'm looking at it right now, and it it shows kind of blue water. It, it's, it's normally white, but it, then it has some blue stuff around the side with no depths. So are you saying you, you went through the blue stuff, or you you went through maybe some parts that were that had depths? On the sounder, going from all the way in, uh, you know, the depth sounders, when you're in heavy seas, sometimes bubbles will cause your depth sounder to give a false reading. I what it was at first. All right, you said that some boats are anchored relatively near the wreck of your boat. What what anchorage is that? I believe it's called Bea Villa. Okay, Bea Villa. Okay. You hit that reef about 10 p.m. on the trip. You called a mayday. Could you could you see the other boats anchored nearby or not really? It just looked like you were in the middle of nowhere. No, we couldn't. Okay, so it was completely black. You couldn't see, you know, you couldn't see anchor lights you were not entering the past right you were just going around the island is that correct yeah. okay so maybe you could explain to me what happened after you hit the reef completely broadside the seas and so we were being slammed uh, picked up and very very violent the radio and start home and did you get a, a a fairly quick response or no so they they came to rescue you within an hour so our time was spent packing, grabbing our ditch bags, packing, and trying to manage the water uh, intrusion. But by that point, uh, we were high on the reef, and the water was coming also. But the boat was shuttering the reef, and we were afraid that it was going to break up. I don't know how much of that you got. 
parts. <laughs> well, that's one of the joys of French Polynesia. Besides the bad charts, is the bad internet. So, for me to mark my chart, or anybody else to mark their chart, where was it that you hit the reef? Do you know the lat and long? I don't know the exact lat and long. Uh, I read out the position to the Coast Guard, and that was the last time I really looked. I do know that that what I, what I will do is go on an uh, active captain and make sure that I put a hazard uh, on the exact position. But the shoal in the reef goes way farther out around that southwest corner. As you probably read in Linda Log, are you using Navionic Arts? And we said yes. And they said, well, uh, we get you know, there's uh, roughly five or six boats a year that wash up on this on on this shoal, and, uh, and they all seem to be using Navionics charts. It's something to really, really consider. And uh, the, the and, and I know that Navionics uh, uses what's given to them probably by French Polynesia. You know, when there's multiple boats that seem to pile up on the reef in the same place. It's, there's definitely something something that should be done as far as uh, hazard. So, when you were going around the island, were you going around the island at a particular depth contour, or I was I was trying to stay in the in the blue water. In the blue um, water, okay. And yes, but I also wanted to get close enough to get into the wind shadow of the island. Because, because of the, uh, we the had, seas. We had just started, we had, yeah, because we had just started turning the corner and we were being hit hard by very, very high seas. So I was trying to get, I was trying to get in the, in the uh, wind shadow of, of uh, Huaini. And so I, uh, I stayed, you know, in the blue water, but tight enough to where we hopefully we were going to flatten the seas were going to flatten out okay so i i think your your plotter must be different than the app that I, that i use because the app that i use it shows the reef is blue and the the rest of the water is white so they probably have a different color scheme than the app that i'm using yeah actually what you can do is uh, you that's all you can put all that in yourself, whatever shading you want. Okay. You know, and it'll it, it will it will it will contour anything you want to contour it. So it just has to do with the settings, how you got it set up. Okay. But my particular one has the deeper water in blue, and then the shoals in white okay. with the depths. So, like a, a a blue water setting, what is that typically? What do you think that the cutoff is between blue and white? Uh, anything. Um, under about uh, uh, 200 feet, it, it's it's probably between 150 and 200 feet. I believe it. It just it doesn't give a lot of depths anymore. It turns to you know at least on our plotter, it turns to blue. Okay. Uh, you thought you were definitely in 150, 200 feet at least. Uh, exactly. And then. Yes. Uh, it turned out you were not. Well, it turned out we went from we went from 185. Last I remember looking, it, it suddenly it showed 185 feet, which wasn't a concern. 
but all of a sudden it went from 185 feet to 130, 120, 110, you know, 85, 75, 65, just like that, you know. Um, every, every sonar reading was shallower and shallower. Like I said, you know, in heavy seas, sometimes you get a pulse underneath the, the transducer and it, and it gives kind of wild readings, you know. Um, we'll be in, we'll be in uh, 3,000 feet water and all of a sudden look and it will show 10 feet and, and all it is, it gives you a, a, a weird reading. But, um, but in this particular case, it acted exactly as if the bottom was rising rapidly. And yet on our chart, it showed should have been in, um, you know, over 200 feet of water. Yeah, I, I get, so. I, I'm looking at the, the chart now, and the, the I get like 200 foot soundings kind of near, I guess, uh, Moto Tarahu or Bay Tiape. Is that, is that about the area you were in? Yeah, that's about the area. Okay. Probably the you would say that the reef extends probably at least uh, a quarter of a mile out further than the charts are probably saying. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. You know, I think it's kind of everybody's nightmare. But I I think you're doing a real service by warning people about this, and also the the fact that there's you weren't the only people this year and over several years for this to happen kind of amazing that that would continue that the authorities wouldn't do anything about that but <laughs> well, I, I joked that uh, I, I joked that uh, I just want to turn Tunda Malika into a lighthouse right into the French government <laughs> French Polynesia and let them just put a big light on it and a solar panel because <laughs> Because it's um, it, it's very treacherous. I'm really surprised there isn't isn't any lighted beacons uh, that are that are marking that uh, how far out that reef goes. Lost, you know, despite our our, our best efforts. Yeah, I I think it's a it's a scary story uh, for a lot of people, but it's true. And uh, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons we can take out of this that you can't believe the charts. But it sounds like you were trying to do everything right, and uh, it just didn't work out that way. Uh, you know, I I guess you you always wonder when were the charts put down. The the other thing that that surprised me cruising here in French Polynesia was the 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 amount of islands that are just uncharted. So I think the two motus uh, in particular scared me to death because so much of the islands were uncharted, so much of the lagoons were uncharted. Yeah, it's amazing. But the same is true of places like the Marquesas, although the Marquesas is not as dangerous as the societies because the Marquesas doesn't have reefs. Uh, there's still quite a bit of the Marquesas that are un uncharted. So I think one of the things that came out in your uh, blogs is that you're required to take the boat off the reef, is that right? Is that what the French Polynesian authorities are telling you, that you have to sink the boat? Correct. Um, we, that, that is We are required uh, the, the damage to the reef that um, the reef. 
the fact that we're we're from Montana, us here is roughly five thousand dollars an hour, and they're estimating that it's going to cost us uh, possibly between fifty seventy thousand um, dollars just to remove the bug. And uh, Polynesia has certain uh, certain designated places where they can sink vessels and here uh, uh, from Huaini, from the position where the boat is, it's approximately 15 miles to the point where we can sink her. So we are we are looking at extremely high costs, whether we sink her or whether we try to get her towed into uh, Raiatea. Basically, the surveyor here said we are looking at between two and three hundred thousand uh, dollars to repair her and. Uh, and that's if we can get her to Raiatea without seeing with the value of, of her and you know with um, um, with the amount of funds that we have available right now we, we can't afford to even begin to repair her much less even get her to Raiatea so we are we are having to opt to to take her out and see so we've spent the last eight days stripping her of every single thing that we can possibly sell cataloging all of that or that have volunteered to help us and uh, we are we're trying to sell off of what can the rest will put in storage here and hopefully other cruisers can can benefit you know and uh, possibly buy some of the things we we uh, can offer but uh, we know that'll be a long a long time coming because because not only are we home most are looking at a huge cleanup bill our insurance company uh, when we left Galapagos, we got a got an email from them stating that they were dropping us. We would be uninsured, and so um, have no insurance. So that basically the the entire boat is um, almost a complete write off. And that's your primary asset too, right? It was. That's right. Um, we had we had sold our home and put every penny into her, and uh, and so we we were completely completely invested in her and so we've, we've uh, at this point we've lost uh, pretty much everything except each other which is is the most important thing but, uh, and we'll be back we'll we'll uh, we'll work and we'll save and we'll we'll, we'll get another boat but, uh, until then uh, we're not quite sure what our plans are going to be we are grateful for any help we we get uh, the cruisers here coming from all over the place uh, coming to temple bus possibly purchase things you know from us to help us and we've had you know 10 or 20 guys out at, at the boat uh, helping us take everything off of her um, and uh, it's been very you know a, a great uh, danger to themselves because it can overestimate how treacherous it is walking out on that coral to get to her every day we have a whole, whole bunch of volunteers and another leopard from these two Sanabu is just absolutely most of them they have agreed to me they have been out there with us and they're allowing us to stay on their boat with them and you know their, their boat is uh, the, the identical boat here than ours so it's been very bitter familiar on the boat yet in on our boat you know, so it's, uh, in one way it's comforting and in another way it's heartbreaking. One of the things we've done uh, is uh, when we when we set out two years ago to sail around the world, our primary goal was to go around doing 
humanitarian work, uh, which we've been blessed to be able to do quite a bit of as, you know, throughout the Caribbean and uh, lots of the different islands that we've been able to visit. And uh, But now we're finding ourselves having to be the, the recipients of, of, of the people's generosity. It's been one of one's giving. Dan, one of the things that you said that was got cut off was uh, you didn't. I didn't get to hear anything about the rescue. So you hit the reef and you called a mayday. And what happened then? Well, the um, the mayday was was answered almost immediately. The coast guard and uh, they all stated information. Just as our position, uh, the combat uh, missiles were on board, um, so forth, and whether we were in any immediate danger. And uh, so, I after passing up that animation, that the, the rescue helicopter was doing a training mission in the mountains of uh, of Raitea, and that they were uh, that if they would be us in about one to one and a half hours to just. Uh, Stay calm and, and just wait for them you know, to, to come. Don't try to get off the boat or into a life raft or anything else. Just, just stay with the boat as long as we could. So we were able to pack, uh, you know, it gave us time to pack um, those items that we would need uh, to spend a night or two off of her. And uh, we, we already had ditch bags, so after an hour and a half, the helicopter uh, flew overhead. Circled back up, and they had to make two trips. I stayed behind Belinda, and they came back and took us on back, and uh, we got a nice helicopter. So I think there's some kind of amazing pictures on uh, Belinda's blog uh, of the kids being lifted and the the photo of your boat on the reef, which is kind of a, a nightmare. Is there anything that I should have asked you but I didn't ask you about? Not that I can think of. I think I probably touched I touched on everything that uh, that I think is important for you and your listeners to know. Um, our daughter set up a uh, our daughter that lives online and has set up a GoFundMe account um, to try to help us raise more money that we're get her off to to try to get us uh, out of French Polynesia, which will be very expensive. And uh, you can find that go account. I believe there's a link couple Belinda's blog. As you know from reading Belinda, she's a very, very, very good writer and uh, a lot of followers and a lot of people that, uh, that read every every post that she makes and uh, kind of lives, lives their adventures through us and uh, if uh, if you want to go to uh, the blog and, and sign up for the updates, um, I think it'd be well worth your your time reading through and seeing what we've been through and what we're going to go through, and it could be very very helpful for those who are sailors and those who dream of this kind of life. And the blog so, is adventuresofatribe.com. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Adventures of a tribe. Any any support uh, you, your listeners can give us, we we are just so humbled. But even 
you know, if, if you can't do anything, at, at least share it uh, so that the story get out there and more people can hear um, about, about uh, what we went through and hopefully it'll, it'll save others from having to go through the, the same thing. All right. Uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, you know, thank you for speaking to us and, and giving these us your your hard-learned experience and uh, the, also the benefit of your positivity. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. All right, so that was the interview with Dan Govatos. One thing that wasn't clear from the interview or my introduction was the location of where the Tonda Malaika wrecked and it seemed to be fairly close to the edge of what's on my current Navionics chart which may have been updated since their wreck uh, but it's maybe a hundred feet in the water that is not obviously reef on my chart and it is on pretty much the south tip of the reef of Huahini and the coordinates for that are 16 degrees 49.75 minutes south approximately 150 degrees 59.67 degrees west approximately and this is not the position where she first hit the reef but rather the position where she laid on one of their latter days of salvage after a week of salvaging the boat. So the boat could have moved from its initial wreck point uh, since then, most probably did, and so the reef could extend out much farther than that point indicates. And so you definitely want to keep a wide berth, especially on the south side of that reef, and the crew and owners of the Tonda Malaika are not the only ones to have lost their boat near that area as is clear from the interview here's a brief word from our corporate sponsor on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing why don't you tell me about how you came up with the swivel so people they like to use them and we would notice and explain to them a lot of the weaknesses that exist that you know with the swivels that were on the market and kind of make sure that they understood those cautions and saying yeah swivels have a function but you're weighing that, you know, what you're gaining versus the risks that you're taking on the other hand. So you have to consider every situation on whether you really want to be utilizing the swivel or not. And I think that we just saw kind of like there's a need in the marketplace for something that was a better design and something more reliable. We use the innovative heavy-duty Mantis swivel on our boat. You can use the link in the show notes to go to mantisanchors.com or buy all your Mantis gear at many fine retailers. I've decided to donate the revenues from this podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing for this episode, $48, to the Govados Willis GoFundMe campaign. And I don't do that lightly. I must admit that I really in general dislike GoFundMe campaigns and I think a lot of sailors especially sailors who go on social media platforms like Facebook express a similar opinion but in the past I have donated the Patreon revenues from the podcast to the Red Cross 
disaster relief fund when flooding hurt my neighbors in Louisiana so badly for an unnamed hurricane. But in general, I do not like GoFundMe, uh, and I particularly don't like it since I run a, a very unprofitable media business, which is listener-supported. And most of my podcast guests are in a similar boat to me in the sense that they put out a lot of free content that costs a lot of money to produce and a lot of time to produce and they ask some of their listeners to support it through donations on patreon.com and those donations are based on the media content they produce the videos they produce in my case it's the videos and the the podcasts i produce and it's a small fraction of what it actually costs to produce these things that I collect from Patreon.com. But I still get comments of people saying that I'm asking for handouts and charity. So Patreon is for content providers, people that produce content on a regular basis but things like GoFundMe tend to be more uh, charitable type contributions. And in some cases, I think some of these campaigns are uh, worthy charitable contributions. And in some cases, I, in most cases, I think they are not. So typically, I would not consider supporting somebody if they wanted to sail around the world and fix up a sailboat. Because I think that you should work for that. We pay for our sailboat and our sailing 100% from our full-time jobs, my wife and I, and 0% from any small amount of money that I collect for the podcast and the YouTube channel on Patreon.com. Um, the So, you know, this podcast is more on the public radio model. We're trying to get more on the advertising model, but we can't at the moment we can't be a hundred percent advertising uh, supported and otherwise uh, it's just a charity that I'm giving to the the uh, cruising community but I know my listeners don't need charity 99.9 percent .9 of my listeners do not need charity um, they do they have not had catastrophic loss the way the Govatos have and that they can support good causes like the Govatos, or they can support the media content they consume. For instance, I recently subscribed to major newspapers whose articles I read all the time for free, but I know it's expensive for them to produce those articles, and I subscribe anyway to support the production of valuable news content and that's the, that's the same thing that's happening here on patreon with your favorite youtube channels or your favorite podcasts you know if you feel strongly about supporting them you feel strongly about the value of the content then you contribute in the case of the govados you know i'm making a pledge because i feel really bad 
about their great horrific loss and I am so grateful that they had the courage to tell their story so other people don't find themselves in that situation. On the patron-only bonus episode to episode 37, I will talk about my cruise from Nukahiva to Wapu to Fakarava in French Polynesia. Thanks for listening. We have a lot of great guests recorded. I've not decided who will be our next guest for the September 2017 edition of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, episode 38. But you'll have one of the most interesting sailors in the world interviewed in that episode. Thanks for listening and have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.